last thing usually to go is our job. When people say to me, how are you even functioning? 40 pain pills a day to get out of bed and show up in Center City, Philadelphia and do your job as a law clerk. How were you doing this? And my entire being thought, well, hey, I still have a job. I'm drafting appellate opinions. I'm meeting with the judge. I'm respected and appreciated. My work product and ethic are good. And so where's the problem? And so in my head, that denial, as we say in the rooms of recovery, denial stands for don't even know I am lying. I did not realize that the barometer had nothing to do with employment. It literally had to do with the substances. The entire time I thought I could stop if I really wanted to stop. I held on to that to the bitter end. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead, a podcast that challenges the notion that the law lags behind. I'm your host, Sigal Barnes. Each week, I invite a lawyer who's making powerful changes through extraordinary leadership. In each episode, we'll travel through another lawyer's life, identify what they do best, and then devise how to apply these concepts to your own world. So let's get to it. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead. I'm your host, Sigal Barnes. Our guest today is the Executive Director of Lawyers Concerned for Lawyers of Pennsylvania, also known as LCLPA. This is an independent, nonprofit corporation run by judges and lawyers that provides non-judgmental, discreet, and confidential assistance to law students, lawyers, judges, and family members of lawyers and judges struggling with mental health and substance use challenges. Leaders and future leaders listening, you are in for an incredible story of a lawyer who is an inspiration to me and so many other legal professionals. A story so incredible that we had to tell it in two parts. Please welcome our next lawyer who leads, Lori Besden. Lori, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for the invitation to be here. Absolutely honored and privileged to spend this time with you. Thank you. I feel the same exact way, Lori. So I don't know if you know this or not, but I start every episode with a little bit of gratitude. What is your favorite moment so far today? My favorite moment so far today was when I woke up and my one rescue dog, I have two, Amazing and Grace. Grace, her head was literally resting on my chest and I felt the vibrations of her snoring and I quietly told Alexa to please snooze so I could stay awake and listen and feel that. So literally just connecting with Grace this morning. I love that you named your dogs Amazing and Grace. What is the meaning behind both of those names? So I do a lot of volunteer work outside of the legal profession. I'm a huge animal advocate. I love animals. I'm that person. I will be talking to the birds when I'm well, probably next year. <laughs> and I volunteered and I rescued first Grace, who was a pit bull. And then the second pup that I rescued, I thought, you know what, I'm going to name her amazing. Just because I believe we all have a story. We all have a miracle to share. And I just feel like there's a lot of amazing Grace because if there wasn't, I would not be alive or on this podcast today. And as it turns out, Maisie which is her name in short. She volunteers at dementia residence. She joins me and comes to all the law schools and has been to the state capitol. She's quite the breed ambassador. So there you have it. Amazing and grace. What a wonderful thing to have two dogs that are not only your family and not only providing you all of this happiness and joy, but partners with you and providing joy and happiness to others. Anytime I have an opportunity to combine all of the platforms that are very important to me, I do that. So 
We did a CLE locally in Pennsylvania, breaking the stigma of substance use, mental health, and pit bulls. I mean, probably has to be the only CLE that was ever on all of those topics together. But any opportunity I can to just melt away any stigma associated, whether it's substance use, mental health, or breed discrimination, whatever it is, I'm all about it. I wish I had known about this CLE because I'm not too far from Pennsylvania. You're always welcome. I'm sure I can get it for you. In the archives, I'm sure we can get you a copy of it. I would love that. And I just wanted to comment on one more thing, which is like being able to lay there and feeling the snores and feeling connected to grace. What a wonderful exercise in being present. Absolutely. That was such a beautiful image for me. Thank you. I can tell you must be an animal person, you know, because some people would hear that and be like, oh, God, another person that's like kissing their dog on the lips. Oh, you better believe it. Yes, I am. (laughs) You know, and there's nowhere else in the world I would rather be. Those of us that love pets like we do, you know, one day to us is seven to them. So the importance and value of time, an animal is the best teacher of that because sometimes we go on like we have forever. The pandemic taught us anything. It's Time is limited. It's also our greatest resource. So be as present as you can to maximize simple gifts like snoring and just paying attention and being present for those moments. They're amazing. Yes. It really gives us a nice snapshot of where you are today. And then we're going to talk about how we got to Lori today. On that note, what is your lawyer origin story? Did you always want to be a lawyer? Well, that's a very interesting question. The answer is no. Starting kindergarten, always wanted to be a cosmetologist, always. Before I was even born, my parents knew that me and my sister, they knew what we were going to do for a profession. One was going to be a physician. One was going to be an attorney. My journey started before I did. (laughs) Education was always very important to my family. I'm extremely grateful for the education that I have. That's why I'm able to do what I do today. So went to college, University of Maryland College Park, then went to Dickinson Law School, and it was during law school where I was in a car accident and that literally sparked off my addiction to substances. And as I say often, it lit a match, caused a forest fire, and then monopolized the next five years and almost killed me. I finished law school completely in the throes of an addiction to Vicodin and pain medication. Then I had two clerkships lined up, first one on the Pennsylvania Superior Court for a former Supreme Court justice. And the addiction continued through that clerkship. I had a source of drugs coming from Texas and ultimately coming through the mail. One time when I called, I was informed the doctor was suspended. And so still not thinking I had an issue, I started calling in the prescriptions myself. Now, obviously, I had no right to do that. I was licensed as an attorney in two states, took Pennsylvania and New Jersey bar exams. I was clerking on the Superior Court. But that's where my addiction took me. And the whole time I believed, oh, I can stop. I can stop at any time. This is not a problem. I figured out a way to get drugs, so I'll just continue to do it. And I'm not proud to say that. I don't share my story or these parts of it because I'm proud. I share it because if this happened to me, this can happen to you or any person listening without judgment. And the most difficult part of us realizing when we're in the depths of an addiction is the shame. When I finally realized, well, maybe I can't get out of this, I was so full of shame and guilt. How did this even happen that I couldn't even ask for help? You know, so ultimately, after that one year clerkship on the Superior Court, I then had another clerkship on the Municipal Court in Philadelphia, added cocaine to the mix, and my life was an absolute disaster. 
every person I drove past was literally, I could have taken their life on the road. And again, addiction, not ever something you think about. Like I never thought, hey, I'm under the influence of cocaine and narcotics. Maybe I shouldn't drive today. Not once. It literally hijacks your rational thinking brain and you just operate flight, fear, and you're just amygdala 100%. First of all, I want to just thank you so much for your vulnerability, for sharing your story. And I know that this is coming from a place so that you can share it in order to help others who are also struggling and even for others who aren't struggling to understand what this looks like for someone. So thank you. Absolutely. I want to go back a little bit to the beginning. Like, What was the car accident? What happened there? And then I want to flush out just a little bit from each part of your story, if that's okay. Thank you for doing that because I think it is important to hear why was it that I was prescribed this and it lit a match, but the other person in the car who was in the accident was given the same thing and they never had an issue. So I was the passenger in my own vehicle. We were both drinking and then we ended up in the guardrail coming back from a Pearl Jam concert. And so we were taken to the ER, minor, minor injuries, and I was prescribed 20 to 30 Vicodin. was not the first time I ever had pain meds, but it was the first time I kind of had semi-a-quantity and did not really need them. So what I've realized is when I took these Vicodin, I was able to literally sit down, study for almost 18 hours and focus. Now, normal people, and I'll put that in air quotes, normal people take pain medication, it puts them to sleep, takes the pain away. Some people can't even tolerate it. They take it and it gets them physically sick and they throw up. What I didn't realize is I was actually self-medicating and treating an untreated ADHD. But how would I know that I had ADHD? I thought everybody was all over the place and couldn't stay focused. I didn't know that that wasn't normal. So I started using these. Then I'll say I started abusing them. The first run to the emergency room in law school to get another prescription of these drugs that helped me study and focus and saying I had this injury and they would x-ray my leg and took hours to get 20 to 30 pills. And I did that until I found a doctor in Texas that would do a phone consult and send them. And the entire time I thought, oh, no, 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 I can stop this. I'll just do it through finals. It'll help me get through finals. Then, well, why don't I do this for the bar exams? Because that's a lot of studying. I'm taking two bar exams. Let me do that. I absolutely believed I could stop at any moment. Three pain pills an hour just to get through each hour of the eight hours of the exams for three days in a row. Wow. Every single day, three pain pills to get through that. It's interesting to hear that thought process because you have this undiagnosed ADHD. The Vicodin is somehow helping you become more focused. It seems to me as though what you're saying was for the first time you felt somewhat like you were able to function in a way that you had never seen before. Right. And often people in recovery, you hear them say, we felt like we had a hole in our soul. So we tried to fill that hole with whether it was food, people, drugs, whatever it is. And when I took those Vicodin, I felt, wow, I'm whole. I'm able to sit, study, and focus. And I did not feel the need to keep getting up and keep using so I think for the first time, I felt I was able to sit, study, focus. I felt whole. I felt like I was filling the void and hole in my soul. You know, and again, keep in mind, until you walk through life and you have life experience, I didn't know that everybody didn't feel like that. It's like a ping pong ball, you know, and in law school, and sometimes that could work to your advantage. 
when you're able to try to switch tasks so quickly, but I was losing so much time really on the cost switch, as we know from many of us cannot multitask, but I think ADHD makes us think we can and that we're successful at it. And it wasn't truly until many years later that I did in 2020 go see a psychiatrist and I was actually diagnosed. I wanted to know that what I have been saying for years, whether it was accurate or not, and I was diagnosed ADHD. How long is that before you had that validated? 21 years. 99 is when the addiction started, the car accident. And 2020, it was literally right before the pandemic. I went to see a psychiatrist and a psychologist, and I was diagnosed. That must have been such validation to know that there was something going on and that that was kind of the impetus for why this addiction started. Absolutely. And I, I think whether I had ADHD or not, you know, not everyone that has struggled with substances or mental health challenges has a diagnosis like that, you know, and I think it's about personality, it's about environment, it's about genetics, it's about opportunity, and sometimes everything combines, reaches each other, and it's an explosion. So I think it was just the combination of time, opportunity to sit and have to study and focus, immediately feeling the shift of, wow, I can sit here and do this. Why wouldn't I do this through the bar exam? And then I'll stop because why would I think I couldn't? And that's where it led me. And you said that you found a doctor in Texas and this doctor was able to prescribe you virtually. Right. It was even before like pandemic virtual. So it was, yes, 1999. And I found this person through an internet blog that somebody else had posted. And I would call him and say whatever identity I was under and would say I had debilitating back pain. And he would send a hundred of these Vicodin through a pharmacy in Texas, overnight delivery, DHL signature required. And the package was not marked from the pillbox pharmacy. It was literally to my name and then a street address as a return. It was packaged so you couldn't hear pills at all. And that's what happened. So I went from, wow, this worked. I no longer have to spend five hours in the ER trying to get these pills and go through the x-ray process. Literally, these showed up. So by the time I took the New Jersey and Pennsylvania bar exams, again, disclaimer, not proud of this. This just is the story. I was three to four different identities with this doctor. So it was not only myself, you know, it was fictitious names. And as the addiction continued and I was on the superior court, I had nine identities with the same doctor. I was even calling this doctor and impersonating a male. Wow. And these were being delivered to chamber. If I was in a meeting with the judge, I would ask, hey, you know, there's a package coming for Dana Reese. Can you sign it? Nobody asked, who's Dana Reese? Every other day there were DHL packages coming. And if I was available to sign, I did. If not, I asked people. We know substance use, mental health impacts, you know, it's a ripple effect. I mean, this was really a ripple effect from the door, quite frankly. What were some of the thought processes during this time? I know you said, like, I can stop at any time. And that was really happening a lot to pass the bar. But these clerkships happened after you were licensed. What were you saying to yourself at that point? How were you making yourself okay with creating all these different identities, too? Like, what were you saying to yourself? I think that raises a really great point. The last thing usually to go is our job. So, you know, when people say to me, how are you even functioning? 40 pain pills a day to get out of bed and show up in Center City, Philadelphia and work and do your job as a law clerk. How were you doing this? And my entire being thought, well, hey, I still have a job. And look, I'm drafting appellate opinions. 
I'm meeting with the judge. My work product is decent. So obviously there's not really a problem here. I mean, I had nothing. I did not have education on substance use. My only barometer was, okay, I have a job. I'm gainfully employed. I'm respected and appreciated. My work product and ethic are good. And so where's the problem? Hmm. You know, and so in my head, that denial, as we say in the rooms of recovery, denial stands for don't even know I am lying. I would say to myself, well, it's just recreational. No, it's not recreational to impersonate a doctor and cause all these crimes and create all kinds of chaos when I had no right to do any of that to fuel a recreational addiction. I did not realize that the barometer had nothing to do with education. It had nothing to do with employment. It literally had to do with the substances. And I missed that memo. The entire time I thought I could stop if I really wanted to stop. I held on to that to the bitter end. It's so interesting to me because I just want to emphasize that point, which is that in your situation and potentially many other situations, it's the job. The job is showing me I'm okay. It's the threshold in which I continue to be okay. And I think that's so powerful. I had never really thought about that before. But it makes sense that like as long as I can keep a job, I have an income, I'm taking care of myself. Like you said, I'm appreciated. I'm proud of the work that I'm doing. Other people are proud of it. I should be okay. But there are so many other things that are indicators, but a lot of people put so much weight on that as the barometer. Right. It's absolutely an illusion. And for what I do with LCL and when third parties call concerned about somebody else and I end up on the phone with the person who somebody has concerns about, nine times out of 10, that's what I hear. I have a job. I provide for my family. Okay, well, my we don't have the greatest relationship. My marriage is not the greatest, but I work. I'm in a firm. I'm a partner. You know, I know that as great of an achievement as all of those titles may be, at the end of the day, they're not going to save your life from a substance use or a mental health challenge that is not addressed. They're simply not. I've been there. So I definitely want to get into the way that you work with LCLPA. But before I do, I want to stay on the course of your life. You talk about then everything comes to a head. Talk to me about that time period. After serving both clerkships, my parents were now happily divorced and I was hitting my parents against each other. That's just what addiction causes. Keep everybody in separate corners to keep this thing going without question. And so I had my dad as my greatest enabler. I was living with him. Mom had already you know, moved out of my life because she realized there was something going on and I refused to get help. She tried to bring me to an eating disorder facility. She thought she figured out what was wrong. They wouldn't admit me. They realized that was not the issue. So she went left. I went right. In between the years 2002 and 2004, I was arrested five times for felony prescription fraud in two states. There was also a DUI in there under the influence of cocaine and narcotics, 29 car accidents, three incarcerations, three rehabilitations. And January 29th, 2004 is my sobriety date. And that is the day that my entire life turned around. Tell me about that date. So that was the fifth arrest. I was clearly not employed. I was on a violation of probation, new charges. And I had the same sentencing judge throughout. And the first time he was kind of gracious. By the last time, he just didn't want to hear it. He didn't want to hear your family's going to save the day. He didn't want to hear it. I had exhausted everybody around me, including the system. And so I knew I was going to go to prison for a period of time because it was a violation. I remember on that day, it was $2,000 of cocaine a week, 55 Vicodin a day, Ambien and Xanax. That's what I was taking on the day of my last use. 
I remember the phone ringing as the police were at my house. It was really chaotic. I remember my dad putting the detective on the phone. Then I remember being transported to the police station and I was getting really sick. I mean, I was starting to detox almost immediately. And I asked the detective, like he was typing with two fingers. And I said, listen, I'm not going to be able to stay upright. I will give you everything. Let me type my own statement. Obviously not really a smart thing for an attorney to do, but I did do that. Seven pages single-faced. Every pharmacy, identity, doctor that I could remember I gave. And as I was in a holding cell, the detective came back and he handed me a corded phone through the cell. Like that's how long ago it was. And on the phone, what I heard was attorney prison going to come see you today. What actually was said to me was, my name's Dave. I'm a volunteer with LCL. I'm sober 31 years from a heroin addiction. And there's a whole slew of us that are out here in recovery. We're going to help you. And I'm going to come to see you today. And I'm going to support you throughout your entire process. That's actually what he said. But I could not hear that. So I was transported to the prison and obviously very sick detoxing. Of course, I was looking for the detox unit. They were like, wrong rehab, put your mattress on the floor. We'll take your vitals twice a day. So towards the end of the first day, you know, I had my mattress on the floor. I was so sick. I was just curled up in fetal position and I heard my name and they called me for a visit. And it took me about a half hour to even get up and put my uniform on. And they brought me to the visiting room and there was this tall gentleman he came in the room, he was like whistling. And I'm thinking, first of all, like, what is this guy so happy about? And who is he? And that was Dave. And he tried his best to explain in the condition that I was in, you know, this is what LCL is. This is what we do. We literally just pay it forward. I'm only showing up to give you what somebody else gave me. And I said to him, am I going to have to work for you? And he's like, no, maybe one day down the line, you can help some people. I still remember those words. And I looked at him and I said, I don't think I'll be helping people, but okay. And he said, I'm going to keep coming to see you, go to meetings while you're here, go to the alcohol narcotics meetings, and I'll be back, you know, and I'm just going to stay with you on this journey. And I just didn't understand. I'm like, did somebody pay you? Who sent you here? I didn't get it. I didn't know anything about paying it forward. I knew nothing. How did he find out about you? One of the founders of LCL, John Carroll, was contacted by law enforcement in Delaware County, which is the county next to the county where I was living, where the last technical arrest happened and then they let me go. So it was new charges, different counties. So they made the mistake of letting me go. Law enforcement contacted John Carroll and said, they're going to execute an arrest warrant on this attorney in Montgomery County. And as that call was made to John Carroll, I was literally being arrested. John Carroll called Dave and said, I don't know how to even ask you to get in touch with this person, but can you call her? And Dave literally, I mean, back, you know, year 2004, pulled out the phone book, looked up Besden. It was the only Besden in the phone book under my dad's name, Norman Besden, called the phone number and my dad answered. And when Dave said, can I speak to Laurie? And he said, who is this calling? And Dave said, I'm an attorney and I think she may need some help. And he said, I knew I had the right house. And that's how he found me. And Dave has not left my side over 18 years, literally. I mean, we have plans in two weeks. He stood by me for every hearing from criminal sentencing to reinstatement in Pennsylvania and New Jersey. LCL makes the connections. It's up to us to manifest those friendships. And the last you know, hearing he stood with me was for a pardon hearing. 
in 2019, which, you know, he just literally hasn't left my side. And he's an amazing, amazing human. I always say, if Dave didn't bring me the message of recovery, and if Judge Carpenter, who sent me to prison for a year, didn't give me that sentence, or if he had listened to my family and let them buy me out, I do not believe I'd be alive today. So, you know, I say often Judge Carpenter gave my family the one gift we couldn't buy, and that was time. Yeah. And Dave brought me the message of recovery. And when I talk about whether it's my reinstatement or the pardon that I did receive, that pardon may have my name on it, but that pardon is about the collective efforts of the legal community, the legal profession, people in recovery, the magic that happens. I mean, my pardon is about John Carroll. It's about LCL. It's about Montgomery County criminal system. It's about the state judicial system. Ultimately, the pardon was supported and in person by Judge Carpenter. He drove hours to come stand at the podium with me when I asked the governor of Pennsylvania to pardon me. Talk about the pardon just for listeners that might not understand what the pardon was actually for. Can you just explain what that pardon was for? Absolutely. So you can seek a gubernatorial pardon to erase your criminal conduct that's on your record. So in Pennsylvania, I had four criminal convictions. There were five total. One was in New Jersey, but three for prescription fraud, one for the DUI. So in order to absolutely expunge and clean that slate, I needed a governor's pardon. In most states, you can expunge one case that's not violent. You cannot expunge four cases that happened over the span of years, especially when it's a pattern of conduct. So that needed to rise to a level of seeking permission, clemency from the governor, which is exactly what I sought to do. And it wasn't a decision because I needed it for my job. It's really a decision because when we get sober and we get this gift of life, we do our best to clean up the wreckage of our past. I walked through what I walked through so I can help the other people who are looking at reinstatement and saying, I never could come back. Look at the crimes I committed. And I say, listen, you can. If you're committed to your recovery and you're learning and you're active in your own recovery and proactive in your own life, you absolutely can. 100%. I'm like deeply moved by the pardon. One, because I think that going through that process is highly symbolic of recovery. It really is a way to wipe the slate clean for yourself, right? But that record, there's so much symbolism there that really can help you move forward in that recovery. And I often say, you know, there were angels that saved my life. They were disguised as judges, detectives, district attorneys, all of probation officers, all of these people that when I was in my addiction and I was fighting it, obviously I had multiple arrests, so I did not stop using after the first arrest. All of these people that I viewed as obstacles and conspirators that want to control my life are all, and when I say all, I mean every single one of them, the exact same people that either wrote letters on behalf of my pardon and or drove and stood with me in Harrisburg when I had my pardon hearing. Also present was the president judge in the county in which I was sentenced, Judge Del Ritchie, and another judge on that bench, Judge Risa Furman. These folks took a day out of their lives of saving lives on the bench to drive to Harrisburg to stand at the podium to let the folks on the pardon board know how the justice system felt about possibly pardoning me. I don't just say it humbly. I understand the pardon has my name on it, but this pardon actually has so much to do with everybody else. I'm the least impactful player out of the entire pardon process. 
it is truly about the magic of collaboration of humans and what's possible. What do you think it was about your journey that had so many of these people come out for this pardon? I think that's a great question. I think because this story was so extreme and multiple arrests in a short period of time, same crime, you know, I started going to a different state, different counties, and I was as intense about my addiction as I've been about anything in my life. It was obvious nothing short of the system was going to be able to stop me. And I think once I was able through the gifts of the system, Dave's recovery and LCL and the support of so many people, I started realizing any life that I have is a result of the people that gave it to me. So I've contacted all of those people. I've contacted the detectives on the date of my sobriety, as well as the judge every single year. And I say, thank you for this life that you gifted me. I know so many people have died trying to get this and did so many less drugs and ended up paying the price of their life. I think along the line also, because it's a legal profession, where the opportunity presented, I've asked the district attorney that prosecuted my case when I went to prison for a year, who's now with the FBI, we were invited to present with Dave at Harvard. And we went and shared our story. And when I say our, like I truly mean our story. Without Dave being with LCL, I wouldn't be alive. So without the prosecution of my case and being in jail a year, I wouldn't be alive. So it really is our story. And along the way, whether it's involving probation officers in CLE programs, the entire way through, including presenting with Judge Carpenter, any time and opportunity I get to invite the people that are truly responsible for this story to share. And I feel like that's given them, I don't want to say like the thanks they deserve, but it's often, I mean, I don't imagine probation officers are thanked very often for the work that they do. They're paid not super well, and they have a really important job to do. But I think it's important when all folks in the legal system, as well as the legal profession, realize your work made this happen. You planted this tree, and every person that I work with through LCL and in my own personal recovery is another branch because you planted this tree. Just a way to incorporate everybody that is responsible for, dare I say, this miracle. I'm really amazed by the amount of gratitude that you have for the people that put you in jail or arrested you or had to oversee you while you were in jail or the people that had to decide on your parole. I think that it could be very easy to still have maybe some ill feelings about those individuals and for you to embrace these individuals as the reason why you were able to recover and to not only stay connected and thank them, but attribute the help that you're giving others to them is really like an enlightened sense of peace. When I think about people finding peace, I think you're really showing what that could look like for people. You know, I've read a lot about various ways of forgiving. And one of the toughest things that I've seen or read about is that it's very difficult to move past or to forgive or to embrace as like part of the lesson or part of the journey. And I think that you've really done that. And I sincerely say this, not every day do I wake up and I'm like, overflowing with gratitude. Most days I do, and I am. But I truly know, at least at the time of this recording, I have been, no doubt, on borrowed time for 18 plus years. If the cards were even semi-fair, semi-fair, I would have died over 20 years ago. You know, there's no reason that I'm not in jail for killing somebody on the road. 
just because that didn't happen. And I can't explain why that didn't happen. Now I bring meetings to the prison because it's important. I used to think the people that did that, I'm like, wow, they really have no life. And now I'm like, this is my favorite night of the month when I get to go to the prison and hear people say like, I can't because, and I say, you can, you can, you absolutely can. It's such a privilege to be given any platform to share that, you know, on a tangent before this whole addiction thing happened, you know, I've always been like an intense personality, but I wouldn't have stopped to give the shirt off my back. It's just not who I was. And then addiction happens. I'm incarcerated 10 months. It's now Thanksgiving 2004. And I will never forget this. This woman on our pod said, everybody get a tray and take a seat at the table. We have these long silver tables. They open our doors. We grab a tray. Everybody sat down. And she said, I'm going to start. I would appreciate if anyone's willing to share what they're grateful for. Please do. You don't have to. 32 women on that pod, 32 women participated. There wasn't a dry eye on that pod by the time the last person went. And that is where I truly learned the meaning of gratitude. And when people say I have nothing to be grateful for, I'm like, I found gratitude in prison. It was the first time I had friendships. It was the first time I was able to eat with people for five years. You'll find what you're looking for. It doesn't matter where you are. And so as a result, now on Thanksgiving, I do a day of service. I have 364 days a year to eat with my family. You know, I go to a very early gratitude meeting with my tribe of people locally. I volunteer at the rescue or walk dogs and clean kennels for four hours. I'm going to speak at a treatment center in person that requires three hours of driving. And then I'm bringing a meeting to the Cumberland County Prison on Thanksgiving night. I do that every single year. And when I go and the inmates or the patients say, oh, you don't have family. And I'm like, no, actually, because of recovery, I do have family. And I get to make these choices and decisions. And there's no more important day to somebody that is in recovery and truly grateful for the life that we have than the day of thanks. That's really inspiring to me, Lori. That was a great recount of a moment that you had in prison. Tell me about your time in prison. What did that look like for a year? What did that feel like? And how did it feel to leave? Okay, so while I was there, like everybody else, I was counting down, you know, 300 days in a wake up. And I was only focused on what could my family bring me while I was there, whether it was putting money on commissary or non-underwire bras, whatever it was. Looking back in hindsight, I realized the gift of time. So when I was there, we put off my sentencing eight and a half months. So I was there not knowing how long I was going to be there, which turned out to probably be a gift. And once we put off my sentencing, I thought I was going to go home at eight and a half months. And the judge was like, no, back to prison, give us 11 and a half months total, then you can go wherever you want. First of all, that act of me thinking I was leaving and giving away everything, taking phone numbers, I'll call your family for you. And then walking back on that unit that same day was probably one of the most humbling experiences of my life. Looking back, people say, like, I can't believe you survived prison. And my only response, the greatest prison I was ever in was the prison of active addiction. The first taste of freedom was actually physical confinement. You know, once all of the drug fog started lifting and I didn't have the option to give in to the cravings and urges, I was forced to learn to have friendships and laugh with people and read. And I was in a visiting room at a table with no phones, nothing, just holding hands of my family members. That time still is such a gift today that one day when my family is no longer with me, I will think back to that time and be so grateful that I had a year of visits where there were no distractions, not one distraction, and we held hands and connected. And so looking back, 
I say that was the greatest thing never happened to me. I don't believe I felt that way when I was there. And when I bring the meetings to the prison, I say to the inmates, you know, I get it. There's not much to be grateful for. But if you turn your life around at this point, you never need to come back here. And I say often, Judge Carpenter, he sentenced me to the option of a new life, plain and simple. If you want it, it is here. Go left. And so looking back, I would never want to do it again, but it was necessary to get me to where I am and also get me to the work that I do. Because attorneys that call or come through LCL who are looking for support and help have been through disciplinary infractions, criminal conduct, and they say, like, I spent time in prison and that's part of my experience that I can share with somebody else and pay forward my experience and say, you know, game's not over. You stay on the right path and you prove yourself. You can make the future whatever you want it to be. Thanks, Lori. We're going to stop here and we're going to continue on with Lori's journey next week with Leading with Redemption with Lori Besden, part two. Leaders and future leaders, thank you so much for listening today. I hope you stay tuned for next week so we can continue on Lori's journey together. Thanks so much. Thank you, leaders and future leaders, for listening today. We have a new guest every week, so don't forget to join us next week. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe or follow us anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow at Lawyers Who Lead on social. Let's celebrate and continue to build a community of leaders in law together. Lawyers Who Lead is made possible by Lawline, the leading online platform for lawyers who want engaging, relevant CLE and professional growth content. For over 20 years, Lawline has helped hundreds of thousands of attorneys level up by providing award-winning courses in hard-to-find areas and high-demand fields. They have so many courses to choose from that are actually really interesting to listen to and watch. That's why Lawline's rated the highest in the industry with over 1,000 verified reviews on Trustpilot. Lawyers who lead listeners get $100 off Lawline's unlimited annual subscription, which means you can take as many courses as you want for a really good price. Just visit lawline.com slash podcast to get the special offer. Check out Lawline for the best content for leaders and future leaders in legal.